The following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Scripture reading comes from John chapter 8 this morning, verse 12 through 30. And these are God's words. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority. But speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. See, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Amen. I want to talk to you a little bit about Jesus' words in John chapter 8. He is the light of the world. He is the light of the world. I am the light of the world. So we talked a little bit about the adulterous woman who was about to be stoned to death. And you, you're, gonna, you're probably going to, if you haven't, if you weren't here two weeks ago when I preached that sermon, you're going to want to catch up. So you're going to want to go grab the app, download the app on iPhone or, or Android, or you can go to the website and pull the sermon. But you're going to want to listen to that sermon because what I'm about to say, if you weren't here, may, may jar you a little bit. And you're going to need to hear that. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, as we discussed a few weeks ago, was not in the original manuscripts of the scriptures, all right? Was not. Came later. 
So when you look at some of the later manuscripts that they pull, uh, the KJV being a, a, a version that they use later manuscripts for, you find that John chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 is there. But when you look at some of the newer versions that have older manuscripts, manuscripts that go all the way back to 5th century, 4th century, and then part, parts and part, pieces and parts uh, of the New Testament in the 2nd and the 3rd century, um, but they have those manuscripts now, and what they find pretty much conclusively, extensively, is that there is no John chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 in any of those manuscripts. Now, there, um, there seems to be um, a, a, a real strong opinion amongst the theologians and amongst the his, uh, biblical historians that what happened, what had happened was, was that John chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 was in fact a true story that the church passed down orally and it was woven into the scriptures at a later time, all right? But it's not there, all right? So they inserted it as best as they saw as a good, appropriate place to put it. Now, like I said, that's as far as I can go this morning. We got a whole sermon on that that I encourage you to go and listen to because it'll, it'll help you and it'll strengthen your faith. It won't make your faith weaker. It'll, it'll actually strengthen it. So trust me on that. But the, the, the point in that, the reason that you need to know that is because John chapter 7 actually picks up in chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. It doesn't pick up in chapter 1, verses 11, I mean, verses 1 through 11. And you need to understand that because there's a sequence that you'll miss if you don't understand that. So this is what I mean. Here's, here's what's happening in this particular text. John chapter 1 picks up as if Jesus, or John chapter 8 verse 1 picks up as if Jesus left the Feast of the Tabernacles. And then after he left the Feast of the Tabernacle, he, he enters into another moment, another scene, another time, another day where he engages this group about the stone, this adulterous woman. And so if you pick it up there, then what John chapter 8 verse 12 looks like is that, and then another day happens. And Jesus says, in the midst of the temple, I am the light of the world. That's not the sequence, all right? The sequence is actually still at the Feast of the Tabernacle. So the Feast of the Tabernacles we talked about a few weeks ago, John chapter 7, Jesus says that, I, that, 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 that if anyone would come to me, they will receive what? Living water, right? From, from the reservoir, from the inside, from, from out of their being shall flow rivers of living water. And he said that referring to his Holy Spirit. And we talked about the significance of that was that in the Feast of the Tabernacles, pretty much every day during that feast, and we talked about it was a significant feast, a great feast and a joyous feast. And they had, they had you know, horns that they would blow and people would be dancing. You know, some of the most holy men they talked about would actually dance through the night, Right? Dance through the night. Some of y'all are like, I don't even see how that jives in, in our Christian culture. Dancing through the night? I don't even understand how that works. Yes, they worship God and celebrate it by blowing horns, singing praises, dancing through the night in celebration during this feast. And it was an everyday thing, Okay. And so, again, imagine yourself like we talked about a few weeks ago. You, get, you had a cookout. You got ribs. You got smoked chicken, right? Somebody got to have the sausage. So it's, it's on and popping. And we are dancing through the night celebrating Jesus. Amen. How about that? Yeah. Everybody's, everybody's like, we'll never do that. I mean, we could. We could. 
<laughs> we can be who's, I mean, hey, somebody, somebody want to volunteer to be the first? I'm in. And I'm bringing the electric slide with me. You know what I mean? I'm coming. So, so what, happens, what happens is that every day they, they are there and, and celebrating, and there's a water libation ceremony where the priests bring water into the temple, and this water is supposed to represent um, a God's, God's handiwork in, in the harvest that they reap the year before or the season before, and, God's, and, and, and pleading with God that he would be faithful and do it again. Bring more water, Lord, all right? And so people would literally celebrate as the priest brought the water in day in and day out. And so it was in that context on the last day where it's supposed to, where the, where, where the, it's called the great day, where it really swells. This ceremony really swells. And there's even more celebration and even more festive, uh, festive atmosphere. It's in this moment that Jesus says, hey, you want water? Come to me. If you thirst, come to me. That's significant, right? Okay, but here's another thing that's significant. On that same day, or during this same festival, not only was water important symbolism, but lights were. Lights were. Lights were very important symbolism. The, 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 the Israelites, the Hebrews, are already, all, the Jews are always celebrating God's uh, grace and mercy towards them during Passover and during their time in the wilderness. And one of the things that they would celebrate, the symbology or the symbolism of this, of this lighting, would be God's uh, guidance through, um, through the wilderness in the, in the fire of night, right? The, pillar, the, pillar, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, the light of God. If you, look at, if you look at the Old Testament, you see a lot of references to light. As matter, before, before I even say that, let me say this, that there's a group um, by the name of Etz Hayim, Hayim, and they are a Jewish and Christian dialogue group, okay? And on their website, they write about this theme of light in the Feast of the Tabernacles. This is what they say. The theme of God as light was realized each evening when four Huge menorahs, which are seven branch candles, were lit in the courtyard of the temple. And their brightness was such that it was claimed that there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect their light. And again, at the dawn each day, when the priests stood with their backs to the temple facing the east and the rising sun and ceremoniously turned their backs to the sun to face the temple proclaiming the Lord as light, during the festival of Sukkot, Jerusalem was filled with the symbolism of light, night and day. So these holy men that would dance into the night, they wouldn't dance in darkness, right? There, there would be this great light that would be seen throughout the city, and it would shine on all people. And that was happening during this feast. So we know the role of water. We know the celebration and the praise and the prayer and the worship that, that surrounded water. But now we see that even light is part of this celebration. There were golden candlesticks, four golden bowls on top of them. Candlesticks were 50 cubits high. So these are massive light, lighting, uh, lighting um, apparatuses, massive lighting apparatuses. Four ladders led up to each candlestick. They would send the kids to climb the ladder to light it each night. 
They made wicks out of the worn garments of the priest. And with those wicks, they set the candlesticks afire. And there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect that light. So the light was about more, was, was, was about celebration, it was about festival, but it painted a picture for the Jews. It pointed them back to their God who guided them, who led them, who kept them, who saved them. And so it was in that moment that Jesus says what? I am the light of the world. Jesus, Jesus literally takes the two most important moments in this festival, in this feast, in this week-long feast, by the way. He takes the two most important moments, and he snatches them from them. And he says, no, 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 no. The water that you guys are celebrating right now, it comes from me. I'm that water. The light that you guys are celebrating right now, that you guys are dancing under, hey, that light has nothing on me. If you're, if you're looking for light, if you're looking for light in your life, if you're looking for light in the midst of darkness, then you come here. You come to me. That's what he's saying. Does it make sense? John talks about, talks about that very early on. Out of the gate in John chapter 1, he talks about that the light came into the world. And he's referring to Jesus. The light came into the world. Men didn't comprehend that light, but it came. The Jews understand the, the context of light. They, because often, even in their own psalms, they were taught to sing, the Lord is my light and my salvation. In other words, in the midst of my darkness, in the midst of my chaos, in the midst of the disorder of my life, in the midst of my sin and brokenness, God is my light. And so Jesus is now saying I'm that light. What do you think he means by that? Well, I'm that light. I'm that salvation. I'm your God. You understand that? Does that make sense? If you don't understand, it seems like the Jews understood it well. Because what happens immediately after that is this, verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself and your testimony is not true. They say, wait a second. You ain't nobody's light. You take that back. There's nobody here that can lay claim to the fact that you're the light. You're running around telling people you're the light. Nobody knows that, but you, you're the only person that's saying that. You take that back. You don't have any witnesses to bear witness to that. And here's the interesting thing. Jesus said earlier, we, when you... Think about it. We've talked about this a few, few sermons ago that Jesus himself said that there needs to be two witnesses, right? But he didn't say there needs to be two witnesses because his testimony wasn't true. He talks about the fact that there needs to be two witnesses in order for him. If he says, I'm speaking on behalf of the Father, then he basically says, and I need the Father to say that I'm speaking on his behalf. If I'm the only one saying I speak on behalf of the Father and the Father doesn't approve of that, then that's not really true. So he says, I and the Father both say that I speak on his behalf. And so in this moment, we see that Jesus is going to respond. He's going to answer his critics, but he's going to answer his critics in two ways. One, he's going to say, you don't know me. And number two, you don't know my Father. You don't know me and you don't know my Father. First, you don't know me. Verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. 
He says later on that I am, I am from above. You are from below. You are from here. Does it make sense? I'm otherworldly. So, so to answer your inquiry of me, to answer your interrogation of me, to, the answer is that you don't know me. Your assessment of me is based on your plane of existence, the plane of existence that you are familiar with. However, Jesus' point is that I'm operating on an entirely different plane. I'm from an entirely different place. There was a, a fable written by uh, Edwin, Edwin Abbott um, that, that Dr. Carl Ellis in his book, Free at Last, references. And the name of the fable is Flatland. Flatland is an imaginary two-dimensional world where everyone is either a circle, a triangle, or a square. Has anyone ever heard of Flatland? Anybody? Okay, we got a few folks that have heard of this place. A circle, a triangle, and a square, and they live in polygons, all right? So, so it's two-dimensional, okay? Picture yourself laying a mat on a table, and this is Flatland, and there are people that live there. And their lines, the lines in Flatland are like walls to them, are like walls to us, right? Does it make sense? They can't cross them. Then a sphere comes to town, three-dimensional circle. He tries to tell them about all the unbelievable things that he experiences in this three-dimensional world that they've never experienced before. And they're initially, they're confused because he was above them. He was talking to them, and he was above them, and they were a little confused about that. So to minimize the confusion, he actually comes down. The sphere comes down, and he lands on flatland. Now, he's still a sphere, right? And so as he lands on flatland, he's still above them in some ways, and he still sees things that they don't see. When they see him on flatland, they see a two-dimensional circle, right? Does that make sense? Even in the process, there have been people, there have been certain squares that have been invited into the, two, the three-dimensional world. And so they get a chance to see what's happening in the three-dimension, and then they try to come back and tell their friends about this three-dimensional world, but no, they don't believe them. There's one guy by the name of Squarey, and he gets invited, and he comes back, and he tries to tell everybody what's going on. Squarey can't convince anybody that there's more to see in this world besides what they see in their two-dimensional flatland. They refuse to believe anything outside of what they could see and what they could experience. Are you, are you, are you tracking with this? Is this making sense? Jesus is the sphere in this moment, saying, I am the light of the world. And while all the squares and the circles and the triangles around him are looking and saying, nah, based on our limited experience, that can't be true. He's saying, listen, you don't know the experience that I'm referring to. You haven't had a chance to experience that yet. The things that I've seen, you've never seen. The places I've been, you've never been. Does it make sense? I'm fascinated at how many people confidently speak about the, or speak, the react, speak the, this, this opinion that there is nothing beyond our experience in the, lives, in the lives that we live when we live so little of life. Our perspective is so narrow, and yet we so confidently speak that there is nothing to, no, nothing to this besides 
besides what we, what we know, what we see, what we have. Does that make sense? Most of us are still finding new pizzas that we didn't know existed, right? It's like, man, this is a great pizza. Did you, did you know they made this kind of pizza? And yet we'll still say, oh, there's nothing, there's nothing else in this life or there's nothing else beyond me. I mean, are you serious? Are you really serious? You just found out that Netflix, you know, had a new movie that you've been waiting on, and yet you feel like you just know that there is nothing else beyond you. But we do. We confidently speak about these things. We, most of us, are living two-dimensional lives as it relates to us and God, and yet we so confidently speak that there is nothing beyond our two-dimensional world. Jesus is saying we are on two different planes of existence. I'm outside of time. I'm outside of space. My my existence preceded before this world. As a matter of fact, I've always existed, and I will continue to exist after this world. He says in verse 15, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Their limited perspectives, or to place it back in flatlands fable terms, their perspectives as squares and triangles and circles cloud their ability to even judge Jesus adequately. Clouds their ability to judge anybody adequately. They look at outer appearances, and they see such an unimpressive man that they automatically make the judgment that he can't be who he says he is. And don't get too low on these guys, because in all likelihood, you may have done the same thing as well as me. Arthur and clinical psychologist Linda Blair says it takes only seven seconds for us to judge another person when we first meet them. Seven seconds, and it's not a conscious process. It happens subconsciously, so we don't even realize we're doing it, and we've made judgments. Seven seconds meeting a person. Ah, that's a bum, <laughs> right? Seven seconds. Dr. Anthony Bradley, a, a, a black scholar and theologian at King's College in New York, at one particular conference event, he explained his Mr. Rogers philosophy of his approach at the beginning of a semester. He takes the first few days of of his semester, right, when he gets a new class, to to put on this kind of Mr. Rogers facade, right? And And so he wears this vest, right, this real comfortable vest and nice little neat little tie and wears his glasses nice and tucked, talks really, really proper, Right, makes make sure that he doesn't use any slang or any any vernacular that might that that might um, set the wrong tone. And 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 you say, why does he do that? And he says, well, the reason I do that is because early on I realized I'm in a predominantly white school, and what I realized is that early on, the people would make judgments about my ability to educate them very quickly based on the way I communicated to them. And so I had to flip the script and give them a Mr. Rogers approach and get them comfortable and then say, okay, all right, man, let me tell you what's up, right? But before that, they would, you know, if I just came straight at them and said, all right, let me tell you what's up, they would, um, nah, I'm not sure if he, he's as educated as we think he is. And so he would give them this educated persona to help tear down walls. Why, you, why does he have to do that? Well, because we make judgments and we make bad judgments and we make wrong judgments and we make quick judgments. 
This isn't just regula- uh, relegated to race. We make judgments on class, on money, on gender, on education, on disability. Within seconds, we're making determinations as to whether a person is competent or incompetent, safe or unsafe, good or evil. Quick judgments feel natural, and yet they don't prevent them from being, or rather that doesn't prevent them from being wrong. This is in a small way what Jesus also meant in John chapter 7, a chapter ago where he says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is also what God means in 1 Samuel chapter 16 when he speaks to, when he speaks to Samuel, he says, do not look on his appearance, talking about the, the, new, the new, new one that is to be anointed king, and he's referring to David. He says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. Christ doesn't judge with limited knowledge, and he doesn't judge based on mere appearances. Does that make sense? Something that, something that in order to follow Christ and model Christ that we should begin to look at doing it even in our own life. Don't be so quick. There is a natural impulse that will push you to quick judgments. Reject and resist the natural impulse, right? Don't assume that you know a person based on a Facebook post, right? Based on a tweet that they send. Does that make sense? Happens all the time in Facebook world, Twitter world. Somebody says something about, you know, whatever, and they immediately start receiving labels. Does it make sense? Don't assume that. It's quick judgment, but it doesn't make it right judgment. So Jesus says, I don't judge. He doesn't judge at all, according to what he just said, or does he? It could mean two things. One, Jesus could be saying that he doesn't judge according to the same standards. Or number two, he could be saying that he literally doesn't judge at all. And I don't believe Jesus is saying that he doesn't judge at all for two reasons. Because the next few verses we're about to read, and because of the very next chapter we will hear these words, Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world. That's in the next chapter. John chapter 9, verse 39. For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. John Piper puts it this way. He says, regarding that verse, John chapter 9, verse 9, which I just read, this at first is jarring because Jesus said in two other places that he did not come to judge the world. In John three seventeen, he says, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world. John chapter 12, verse 47, he says, I did not come to judge the world. But the contradiction is only apparent, but it is not real. When Jesus says that he did not come to judge, he means that condemnation is not his first or his direct purpose. He is coming to save. When he says, for judgment I came in the world, he means that inevitably, as I save people by truth and love and righteousness, a division happens and rebellion is revealed and people are confirmed in their own belief. In other words, John 3.17 says, I didn't come to judge the world because if he who rejects the son is already judged which means that his judgment is secondary. It just happens. As he is coming to save, those that reject automatically are judged. Piper continues and he says, it's like a doctor being called to amputate a man's arm because of a horrible infection in order to save his life. Just before the sick man goes under the anesthesia, he asks the doctor, did you come to cut off my arm? 
And the doctor says, I didn't come to cut off your arm. I came to save your, save your life. And we would all know what he meant. Does it make sense? And so when Jesus says, I didn't come to judge, it doesn't mean that judgment is not going to happen, which is why you see in other texts where he says, judgment has come. Does that make, make sense? So he's not talking, he's not contradicting himself. But even in verse 16, it says, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. And so Jesus highlights that that were he to judge, and even more appropriately, when he judges, he judges true. And how does he assure us that he judges true? Because I have the Father who is judging the situation with me. And I judge it in the same manner because I am in him and he is in me. Does that make sense? Remember, he says in John chapter 5 that I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. By the way, this gets back to the second way that Jesus answers the critics. First way was you don't know me, right? Second way is you don't know my father. Not only does the father bolster his claim of judgment, but the father is the ultimate witness to call on the stand on behalf of himself. Remember in John chapter, um, I'm sorry, sorry, Matthew chapter 3, as Jesus is being baptized, father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There's another occasion where the father says, this is my beloved son, do what he says. Does it make sense? The father bearing witness on the son. And so Jesus says, listen, you don't have to listen to me. You can listen to him. He communicates his approval of me. He communicates that the things that I say are true and that they are real. Now, of course, they don't know this yet. But as we, as we work through this text over the, over the course of the next couple of weeks, you're going to see that, that this is going to start getting really, really ugly really, really fast. Because verse 19, it says, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you neither, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. So what's happening here is Jesus is saying, they don't know this yet, (laughs) right? They're about to find out. What he's saying is, is that you don't know God like you think you know him. Because if you knew God like you thought you knew him, you would know me. Because you don't know me, you don't know him. Does that make sense? They claim to know. These are men. The Pharisees are men who pride themselves in knowing God. They have a self-righteousness about this idea that they know God. Jesus is saying, nah, you don't. Because if you did, you would know me as well. Now, he says this near the treasury as he taught in the temple. Now, they know he's claiming some things that should get him in trouble. They've already asked for witnesses. They can't find any. But notice what it says. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And I want you to understand something. John particularly tells you that he's saying this near the treasury for a reason. Because also near the treasury, which is in the court of women, 
also near the treasury is also where the Sanhedrin council gathers. In other words, the group of people that make decisions on who's out of the law, outside of the law, who's inside of the law, who do we need to arrest today, who do, you know, who do we need to call the temple popos and tell them to come, come get this guy, temple police, temple police, call the temple police and, and come get this guy. You know, who, 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 is, who, is, who is it amongst us that we need to regulate, right? Jesus is out here in front of their door, basically, saying these things. I'm the light of the world. All this water y'all bringing up to the temple, if you really want water, come through me. You don't know my father. He's saying all these things, right? Right outside of the door of the courthouse, if you will. Now, what, what's happening? And, and, and the scripture says no one arrested him. <laughs> what's happening? God is showing you that nothing happens outside of his timing. That you literally can be in the face of the judges, talking cash, money, noise. I mean, he is, he is saying things in front of these people that should get him stoned in these streets. And yet, nobody's arresting him. Nobody's touching him because it's not God's timing. God says it this way in Acts chapter 4. He says that, that there was brought to him, that I'm sorry, so let me, let, yeah, here it is. When they were released, Acts chapter 4 verse 23, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined. In other words, Pontius Pilate under the hand of God. Herod under the hand of God. Gentiles under the hand of God. The people of Israel that brought Jesus up, you know, and said crucify him under the hand of God. No one moved outside of God's sovereign will. That if they, if, they, if they really had control of the situation, they would have killed Jesus months ago. But because it was not his time to be killed, because it was not his time to be crucified, there was nothing they could do. So what does that mean for you and what does that mean for me? Listen, God is, God is not moved by your circumstances. God is not moved by the people in your life. God is not moved by your situations. God is not moved by the lack thereof or the plenty that you have. God is moved by his own sovereign power and his own sovereign will. The Bible says that God sits in heaven and does all that he pleases. And so you don't have to worry about whether or not God has control. He's never losing control. Nothing spins out of control for God. You say, this world is crazy, man. When, when the world is going, listen, God is ruling this world, this crazy world, as one pastor used to say, with his feet up. This world is not outside of his control. 
And so don't chicken little this. Does that make sense? Don't go around the sky is falling. Oh, my goodness. God is out of control. Oh, my goodness. What in the world are we going to? God is in control. He hasn't lost it. He never will. I'm going to blow really, really quickly through these last verses, by the way. All right? So walk with me. Walk with me as we close this out. Verse 21, he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me. And you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? Some really... sadistic minds, right? He gives them that quote and they say, is he going to kill himself or what? It's not what he's talking about. We know what he's talking about, that he's going, that, he's, that his journey moves from the cross to the grave, from the grave to heaven, right? Does it make sense? We just sung it, right? Heaven to earth, right? Earth to the cross, cross to the grave, grave to the sky. That's his journey, and that's what he's telling them. Hey, I'm moving there. You cannot come with me. And then he says this, you will seek me and you will die in your sin. What does that mean? Does that mean that they're going to be looking for Jesus and actually die? No, it means that they're going to be looking for a Savior, and the Savior was there, and they didn't embrace him. They're going to be looking for a Savior, and the Savior was right in front of them, and they rejected him. And that's, because, and that's why they'll die in your sin, die in their sin. Functional idols will keep you from the home that you're truly looking for. You understand that? Functional saviors will keep you from the home that you truly look for. It can be, you know, it could be Buddha. It could be Muhammad. But it can be sex. It can be drugs. It can be alcohol. It can be women. It can be power. It can be work. Anything that sets itself against God and causes you to run after it to find fulfillment, to find completion, to find identity. It can be family. Jesus says, there are many that will be looking for me, but are finding other things instead of me, and because of that, they will die in their sins. Because your problem, your issue cannot be resolved. Your sins cannot be forgiven in money. Your sins will not be forgiven in power. It won't be forgiven in sex. It won't be forgiven in women. It won't be forgiven in Buddha. It won't be forgiven in Muhammad. There's only one who declares power over sin and the ability to forgive you of it. And you have to come through him in order to receive it. If you reject him, it's not and it's, it's not because it's not because he's first judged you that you've rejected. It's because you rejected what was the only source of your salvation. You're already judged. Verse 23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe, there it is, right? 
Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Not looking for other people to be who I am. Not looking for other things to be who I am. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world that I have heard from him. And they did not understand. He had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. He says, when you, when you lift me up, you're going to know. And remember that when Jesus was lifted up, Matthew 27 describes that scene. She's lifted up in that moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This relationship that he speaks of in this text that we're reading right now, it almost appears as if it's been broken, it's been severed. He's looking around, he can't find relief because God, because the weight of our sin is bearing down on his shoulders. And this father that he says, listen, he is with me. He has not left me alone. And here he is saying, why have you forsaken me? That's what he took for you. He says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And yet, on this, in this moment, he's saying, why hast thou forsaken me? I do everything to please you. I always please you. You say, why, why did it happen? Well, it happened because you and I don't always please him. And so somebody had to take the rap for that, and it was his own son that took the rap for you and took the rap for me. But on that day, you, you, if, if you recall, if you, know, if you know this story, and if you don't, then, 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 then that's okay because I'm going to read it. But it, it reads, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice in Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. He cried out, cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and rocks split. And the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after the resurrection. And they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake, earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And so Jesus says, listen, you don't know now, but you will. When you lift me up, you'll know that the Son of God came in power. The Son of Man came in power. But it's not just good enough to know it. It's not just good enough to even acknowledge it with mouth, but to embrace with heart. Will you accept him? Many people that say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Many people that say, yeah, he lived. Many people, many people even declare that, yeah, he resurrected from the grave, and yet their life shows no reflection of it because they have not embraced. Will you embrace by faith? Will you trust, not just in the facts, but will you trust him with your life? That's what the Pharisees were failing to do in this moment. That's what so many that followed the Pharisees failed to do. May it never be us in this room. Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you. We give you praise, glory, and honor. Would you 
continue your work in our hearts as we depart from this place, to continue to give us strength to stand. Father, if there be any in this room who do not know you, Lord God, may they come to embrace you, Lord God, as their Savior and Lord. May they come to trust you, not just acknowledge the facts, Lord God, but trust you with their lives. Turn from their life of sin and begin afresh, begin anew, living a life dedicated to you and your service. We love you. We thank you. We give you all the praise and all the glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.